and welcome to She Thinks a Podcast, where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we're honored to have on Representative Brian Stile from the great state of Wisconsin, who joins us to discuss the number one concern Americans have, which is inflation. We'll cover the policies responsible and what can be done about the increase in prices that are now outpacing wages. We'll also consider whether relief is on the way or if high costs are here to stay. Congressman Brian Stile represents Wisconsin's first con- congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives. As a member of the House Financial Services Committee, Brian is focused on making the American dream achievable for everyone. Prior to be elected in Congress, Brian spent a decade working in Wisconsin's manufacturing industry, first with an industrial motion control manufacturer in Beloit, Wisconsin, and later at a local plastics manufacturer in Milton, Wisconsin. It's always a pleasure to have on those who understand private industry on our program. Congressman, thank you so much for joining She Thinks. Beverly, thanks for having me on. And so we're going to get into that that topic called inflation. We've we've heard inflation described in many ways in the past few months, first saying it doesn't exist, then saying it is transitory. Then maybe the Democrats came around to say maybe this is a little bit of a problem. Well, it's a big problem. According to a recent poll, inflation does top COVID as the number one concern in the country. And so I'm curious, as you are in your district, you talk to your constituents, what are they saying about the cost of goods? Beverly, I can't go to the grocery store. I can't go to the gas station without people coming up and sharing their frustration with the rising costs that are clobbering Americans in the pocketbooks every day. And one of the big drivers of this is the out of control spending that we're seeing in Washington, D.C. We continue uh, to see money being spent here in Washington at exorbitant levels. At the same time, the Federal Reserve is pumping all of this cash uh, into our economy. The balance sheet at the Fed has increased by $4 trillion. And in the end, it actually punishes hardworking families. Wages aren't keeping up with inflation. And inflation impacts everybody a little bit differently. And so in particular, what we're seeing is seniors on fixed income and low-income workers getting disproportionately really hit in the face here and hit in the pocketbook by inflation. And so that inflation number looks like it's about 7% on most items, whether we're at the grocery store or we're at the gas pump, we're seeing those prices go up. So when you talk about low-income Americans, whether they're elderly or whether they're younger Americans, low-income, just trying to make make things um, work for them, what are you hearing from them? Are people having to decide whether or not they can buy gas versus buy food? How are people actually making it, making do during this time? Well, a couple of things are playing out. So one is people are making decisions as to what to buy, exactly what you're talking about. People are going into the grocery store and where maybe before they used to buy you know, chicken, now they're, they're finding themselves uh, skipping on some of the meat in their meal. And so they're making kind of alternative purchases that has a real impact on quality of life. Sometimes it's food, but also it's kind of what car you're going to be able to buy as car prices uh, have gone up. Maybe you're downsizing and getting a smaller car. And if you're from a state like I am in Wisconsin, uh, you want a little bit of a heavier car to drive in the winter if you can. Uh, and so people are having real impacts uh, on this. The the other piece of the puzzle I think that's really playing out on this is people are just getting clobbered and it's not keeping up with wages. So they're the if you didn't see a 7% wage increase, but the cost of everything you buy went up by 7%, effectively, uh, you've been hitting the pocketbook is with a federal tax. And the functions uh, what we've seen for the past year is people really having a, a 2% tax cut in effect uh, is inflation is not keeping up 
uh, with wages and it's wages aren't keeping up with inflation. It's been a real problem. Well, I think it's always interesting when we have new data coming out, whether it is a jobs report that comes out every the first Friday of every month. And you see that the Democrats or the Biden administration like to cherry pick the data. Republicans do that as well. But they've been talking about wages, saying wages are on the increase. We've had such wonderful increase in wages. But the reality is, as you were saying, if inflation is what it is, then wages can't keep up. And and the other side that I have been seeing, this is where I live in the state of South Carolina, no matter what fast food place I pass, there are these incentives on this. There are signs saying we will give you up to $40,000 a year if you come in or we'll give you a signing bonus. Minimum wage is now $12 an hour. It seems that even as wages go up, it's not incentivizing everybody to get back to work. Yeah, we've seen this administration continue uh, to disincentivize workers to get back to work, and far too many Americans are on the sidelines. What we have seen, uh, I think quite continuously, is the fact that Biden has been putting forward policies that do not discourage workers to return to work. We've seen so many of the social policies being put forward, discouraging work and not tying government payments to work. There's a real dignity in work, uh, and taking that away from people is dangerous, uh, in the long term is the longer people are out of the labor market, the harder it is uh, for people to return. I think a question that so many people have is, is inflation here to stay? Is this what we can expect for the foreseeable future? What is your read on that? What do you tell Americans on how they should prepare? Yeah, I'm pretty concerned that we're going to see inflationary pressures uh, for some time to come. The reason for that is Congress has allocated but not spent trillions of dollars uh, throughout the course of this pandemic. And so although Congress has approved the spending, that money is not yet out the door. And so we still have billions and billions of dollars that are gonna flow through the economy uh, in the months ahead. At the same time, the Federal Reserve uh, increased their balance sheet by $4 trillion in the last two years, $100 billion in the last two months. Uh, and we haven't seen that begin to slow and taper. My concern is there's gonna be real pain as we start to really rip the Band-Aid off of these bad COVID era policies uh, and work to get our way of life back. And so I'm concerned uh, that inflation is going to continue down the path that we're seeing for, for some time to come. And something that the president and Democrats are still trying to push forward with it is some type of version of the Build Back Better plan or agenda. If that type of package is passed, will that provide relief for families or actually worsen inflation? It, it won't provide uh, relief for families in the way that it's being advertised. We can dive into the details. For, take, for example, childcare. It's a huge problem for so many families across this country. It's incredibly expensive. It's very difficult to obtain. And in Build Back Better, what the, the president's plan does is it does provide free childcare for some individuals, but it actually restricts the supply. It puts all these federal government mandates and in particular goes after uh, providers that have religious affiliations. And in the end, it's going to drive the cost of childcare up. There's some estimates that show it'll almost double the cost of childcare, taking it from roughly $16,000 a year to $29,000 a year, putting it beyond the reach of hardworking families. And so the advertising on this bill is that it's going to give you things for free. But I think we all know when something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And when you look under the cover at the text of the bill and how it actually operates. Some people will get it for free, but average working Americans are actually going to foot the bill for this, not only in future higher taxes, but in the short term in higher costs for childcare 
Uh, and it's a real loss. It's a real loss if this ever got through, uh, because Americans are going to be just continually punished in the pocketbook. And so what is your read, let's say, on more moderate Democrats, voting Democrats, independents out there who see that our debt is now at 30 trillion and that breaks down to roughly $90,000 per American? When they see those numbers, do they think we need to spend more to help people who are struggling or does the average American out there realize that nothing is free and if the government continues to spend, that means more taxpayer money is going to be needed to deal with this debt? As costs continue to go up, I think more and more Americans are waking up and realizing that we need to address the runaway spending in Washington. As you noted correctly, the debt just crossed $30 trillion, it's $90,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States of America. That has long-term implications. We need to turn the corner immediately. They, economists will measure this in a debt to GDP ratio, meaning how big is the loan that you got against how much money you're making. That's how you think about it if you're a family, the government's the same way. Our debt to GDP is over 100%. That's kind of entering into the danger zone. And now is a moment in time as we come through the pandemic, we need to rip the Band-Aid off of our COVID era policies, get our spending under control and work to get our way of life back. And as we get our spending under control, we will eventually uh, really be able to limit these price increases that are just clobbering American families. And one of the things I've wondered, just as time has gone on, we have seen the debt over the years continue to rise. We almost get to this place where even hearing a trillion doesn't sound like that big of a deal. We're almost desensitized to thinking about trillions being added to the debt. Now, we've heard the concerns that you've mentioned here, which is we can't keep doing this. But where is that tipping point where we get to the point of no return that if we don't stop spending now, we are going to see the dollar collapse or the economy will have a major take a major hit. What are we what are you seeing from economists as being that tipping point? Well, economists always kind of look at the spot that we're at right now as being somewhere near the tipping point. You can hang out there for some period of time, but that's not where you want to be. And so what we need to do is really dramatically work to get this under control before we ever actually go off an actual cliff. So we have a moment in time right now where we can change course, where we can limit our spending, focus and target our spending to protect programs like Social Security and Medicare, programs that we've made promises to our seniors, but actually stop the new government spending that we've been seeing over these years. And in the short term, while we haven't seen the cliff that we're all concerned about down the road, we do see the real world consequences of the reckless spending in Washington uh, being rising prices, which are just clobbering uh, families day in and day out, as we discussed earlier. Well, something that I mentioned in your bio earlier is that you do have that private sector entrepreneurial business side. And I know that you are focused on helping families, small business owners in your district. And you have a special focus also on struggling black and minority families moving forward. Do you, do you find that communities of color feel like the American dream is still for them? There is far too many Americans that feel like they're not getting a fair shake. And that's understandable. We put in so many roadblocks uh, in this country for so many individuals. And I take real specific focus on our education policies. Uh, I was recently at a black church uh, in Racine, Wisconsin, uh, in the, the congressional district. I have the honor of being a voice for. It was speaking to a couple moms and dads there about the importance of school choice, that the education of your child should not be dictated by the zip code that you live in, that you should have an opportunity to choose the school that's best for your child. I had a radio interview not that long ago and I was being pushed back by the host who was making counter arguments to school choice. And I said, wait a minute, 
there is school choice for ever for some in this country right now. If you're a family of means, you have the ability to move to a new zip code, move to a new school district. You have the opportunity to pay for private education. But if you're a family that doesn't have those means, you don't have school choice. And so my belief is that we should make sure all Americans have the opportunity to choose the school that's best for their children. And what we have seen, I think, for too long is many groups in our in our country feel like they don't have a fair shake. And in many situations, there's policies that we could change to dramatically improve that. And I think school choice is at the absolute forefront and made all the more aware as we have seen during this pandemic, school districts making political decisions rather than decisions that's in the best interest of their child. And in particular, we've seen what schools are teaching. Moms and dads who had their children at home have a, little, a lot more insight into what's being taught in our schools. We need to get control of our curriculum and make sure we're teaching students how to learn, not teaching students what to learn. I think we also have to spend some time and really look and say, how do we do this in a manner so that moms and dads have more control, more say uh, in their school, and in particular in the choice of where their children are going to school? Do you feel that in your state that there is a willingness even among school board leaders to make some changes in education? Do you think just like we're seeing in this, the state of Virginia, the new governor there moving forward with certain executive orders that you are seeing in your state as well, that there is enough of an uprising of parents who are demanding something different that state officials are having to listen? Uniquely in the state of Wisconsin, uh, the state of Wisconsin is one of the four, uh, one of the forerunners of school choice and our previous governor, Tommy Thompson, he really kicked that into motion. It was accelerated under our governor, Scott Walker. Uh, and so for many communities, we have the opportunity for school choice, in particular uh, in the city of Milwaukee and the city of Racine in my district. Uh, but it's not as prevalent as I think it should be. I think we need to make sure that we're expanding this and giving moms and dads more options to make sure that they're getting the school that's best for their child. There is a lot of pushback on this. There's always uh, pushback whenever you're trying to make change. But I do think when you talk to moms and dads out there, they agree with this and they understand that the schools that their children are in, if they're dictated by zip codes, aren't always the best school for their child. Children are usually best served when their moms and dads are making the decision to say, this school is the best school for my child. And that's where I would like them to go. And I think it's critical that we provide that opportunity for all children, not just a, a selected few. And I do think that Biden administration has been pretty tone deaf on the issue of education, but also on the issue of crime. I want to talk just briefly about the crime in your area. So some recent numbers I saw is that policies have resulted in 25 murders and three officers getting shot in Milwaukee in just January alone. So crime is going up everywhere. Yet the, the even the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, talked about soft on crime policies, questioning those. It doesn't seem that this administration is taking crime seriously. What are you hearing from your constituents? Are they concerned about crime? Yeah, I hear time and again about the impact that crime is having on families all across this country and crime is out of control. And in particular, in some of our biggest cities, you rattled off some statistics uh, about Milwaukee, but we also have those same challenges in Chicago and big cities across this country. And we have seen soft on crime policies have a real negative impact on the quality of living across our country. And so I think it's a moment and a time of reflection of the importance of standing with local law enforcement about enforcing the rule of law and about making sure our communities are safe for everyone. 
I think that is just absolutely essential that we really turn the tide of the anti-police rhetoric we saw uh, pervade across the country uh, over a year ago now and really come back to the core tenet that we need to support our men and women of law enforcement who are lacing up their boots, putting the badge over their heart, walking out the door uh, to serve and protect our community. And they need to know that we have their back. And just final question for you, I think as people hear about the wide variety of problems that are happening in this country that they're personally experiencing, they may be asking themselves if the best days are still to come. Do you have an optimistic message for people um, based on what you see in Washington, D.C., people working together to try to make better changes? Yeah, there's days where I'm getting on the plane and coming out to Washington, D.C., and I think to myself, what am I doing? I feel like I'm pounding my head (laughs) into a brick wall. And sometimes I reflect back at the very beginning of the pandemic before everybody understood what was going on. You remember the days people were wearing saran wrap, people didn't know what to do. And I was flying out to Washington, D.C., and I came into the Milwaukee airport, and there's nobody there. I mean, you could have shot a cannon through the airport and you wouldn't have hit anybody. And I came up the stairs, and I'm heading over to my gate. In front of me are about four or five people standing there holding signs but facing the other way. And I said, i got to figure out what uh, these people are doing. And so I went up and said hello, and I said, how do you, how do you all know each other? And they said, we don't. And so I thought, well, this is really strange now. So what are you here for? And I'm kind of looking at their signs. And they said, well, respectively, our sons and daughters uh, just finished basic training for the United States Army and they're coming home. I thought, holy cow, can, can, I, can I wait with you and uh, say hello and thank them? And so they said, sure. And so a few minutes later, their, uh, their, their sons and daughters got off the flight. And again, there's nobody in this whole airport and come walking out, embrace their mom and dad. I got a chance to say thanks uh, for joining and thanks for your service. But I reflect back on those young men and women and why they join uh, the, the military in the first place, the United States Army. And it's when I talk to these young men and women, it's not because our best days were behind us. It's not because we were a great country. It's not because we had freedoms and liberties. These young men and women who joined the United States Army or the United States military to serve and protect our country are joining because they know we live in the greatest country in the world. And they want to protect our country for the years in front of us. They want to protect so that their children have the freedoms and opportunities that we have. And they know and they believe that we have the greatest country in the world and we will continue to and our best days are ahead. So with the days that I get pretty frustrated with what's going on in Washington and the dysfunction and all the challenges that we face, sometimes I reflect back at that moment of meeting those young men and women who had just finished basic training in the midst of this pandemic and a reflection that I know and I am convinced that our best days truly are ahead. And so many people in this country are fighting for freedom, including you. We appreciate all the work that you do, and we thank you so much for joining us on She Thinks. Congressman Brian Stile from the state of Wisconsin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. And thank you all for joining us. We hope you take away something new from today's conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, join other like-minded women and men for more great conversations on our members-only platform, Independent Women's Network. Members enjoy exclusive content, resources, messaging workshops, and more. All you have to do is enter She Thinks at checkout for 20% off your membership. From all of us at IWF, thanks for watching and see you on the network.